Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. Maybe you've heard that there's an election coming. Y'all heard that? That's not news to anybody? Um, I, I, I don't know how in the world we ever knew what to do before there was Facebook. Do you? I mean, honestly, all you have to do is log on, and within about the first four posts, somebody will tell you what you ought to think. Uh, don't read any farther, because if you read three more posts down, somebody will tell you that that's wrong, and you ought to think the other way. <laughs> this morning, I, I want to I do a crazy thing. I want to talk to the body of Christ, the church, the church in Lewiston, uh, about staying Christian in the climate of a national election. I've been told that there are only two reasons a person would preach on something like this. One is they're crazy, and the other is they're planning on leaving town right after church. <laughs> In this case, the second is literally true. <laughs> We're leaving town right after church, and the jury's still out on the first one as to whether I'm crazy or not. Um, but this has been on my heart for a long time. Uh, because, as I've said for the last two or three weeks, um, and this has been kind of a new thought, and I've shared it with you before, I really am coming to believe that the darker it gets, the greater the potential for the impact of the church becomes. The darker it gets, the more of an impact a little bit of light has. And so I don't welcome the darkness. I, I'm not glad it's getting darker. I'm not glad things are getting more divided. I'm not glad there's more animosity than there has been before. I'm not glad for the division at all. But in the context of that, what an incredible opportunity for the Church of Jesus Christ to be salt and light in, in this world. So we're going to jump in to this idea of how we stay Christian in the midst of a, of a national election and all the stuff that's going on. And really, uh, there are just three things uh, that, that I want to say to you. The first one is that differences of political perspectives have always existed in the church. Always. But they should never, ever divide the church. Now, I believe that's true, and, and it's most important in the local congregation. But I also believe it's true for the greater body of Christ in the world. One of the things that disappoints me about the church in our culture, the church in America, is, is that it's, it's not difficult, and I'm not going to name names, but it, it's not difficult to know where folks that lean this way politically go to that church, and folks that lean that way politically go to the other church, and and that's just a shame because we tend, we tend to put each other in boxes. We, we tend to judge one another. Listen to Paul, who, by the way, wasn't writing about this particular election. Uh, you are aware of that, right? <laughs> so in Ephesians 4, Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Oh, I wish we could spend time there. We can't. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. Here's the underlined part. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make Church, make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There really is no higher priority in the life of the local congregation than the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. That that we care for each other. We care for each other regardless of where we live or what we look like or or even, and, and I know this is where the ice gets thin sometimes, even how we vote, even what we believe is important. It breaks my heart that we often can't talk about this stuff. I, I know the, the Thanksgiving advice, we've all heard it, and, and it's coming, by the way, it is, it is around your Thanksgiving table, don't, don't talk about religion or politics. In our setting, it's probably easier to talk about religion, maybe, depending on who your crazy uncle is that's coming to town over Thanksgiving. By the way, I say that because in our family, I am the crazy uncle, so, so I, can, I can talk about us crazy uncles. But it's too bad that we can't share our hearts in the area of, uh, of politics, stuff like that. I think I think part of the result of years and years of years of saying you can't talk about that stuff is is we don't understand each other very much, very well. We don't know why our crazy uncle feels the way he feels. Because as soon as he tells us how he feels, we throw mashed potatoes at him, figuratively or not. Why can't we talk about this stuff? It breaks my heart. I, I, read it, I read it twice yesterday. It, it really breaks my heart to, to read a post or hear a brother or sister say, I, I can't see how a person could possibly vote for fill in the blank and be a Christian. Just yesterday on my Facebook post with my friends, I, I, I read one from each side. I, I, I cannot see how a person could vote for and, and be Christian. And the truth is, it's, it's worse than that. I, I, I read one from each side that says anybody who would vote for can't be Christian. You see, when we say I can't see how a person could possibly vote for a blank and still be Christian. All we've really said is, I can't see. Let that soak in for a second. All we've really said is, I don't understand. The tragedy is that we go on to say, or think we're saying, they can't be Christian and feel that way about this. 
The trouble is, dear friend, they are Christian. And, and they feel differently than I do. They feel differently than you do. And, and they are seeking to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, just like the folks on the other side. And so when we're tempted to say, I don't understand how in the world you can think that and still call yourself a Christian, understand that what you've said, and it's an important thing to say, what you've said is, I don't understand. Maybe, maybe we could over coffee sometime or pie or whatever helps you get down with persons of common faith and talk about important stuff. Maybe sometimes we could sit down and, and say, let me explain to you, not, not persuade you, not trying to change your mind, but let me explain to you how I, a disciple of Jesus, can feel this way. And, and then what I'd like to do is shut my mouth and listen to you, not persuade, but explain. How is it that you, a disciple of Jesus, have come to these conclusions? And then we decide who pays the bill. Maybe that's how we know who won. I don't know. And we get up with the words of Paul ringing in our minds. Whatever else, folks, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. You see, I really do believe that people in the world are, are not looking for a place where folks just like them can be accepted. I think people are looking for a place where everybody can be accepted and not just folks like them. It's a seeing problem, not a being problem. It's not a matter of not being able to be Christian. It's a matter of not being able to see how the other person has come to their decision. We have that problem because, and and. This is the one thing I'm going to say this morning that I know to be absolutely true, and if you don't think it is, you're just wrong. We, we have that problem because we all believe we are right. Anybody want to No, we don't have time for testimonies. We all believe we are right. But the problem is we're wrong about some stuff, and we don't know what that is. I've mentioned before a very, very important sermon preached by John Wesley, a sermon called The Catholic Spirit, in, in which he delves into this issue of, of believers who, who have opinions about things that they believe to be the right opinions and, and other believers who have different opinions about those same things and they believe to be the right opinions. And, 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 and basically what he says is, we all think we're right, we're all wrong about something, we don't know what it is we're wrong about, therefore... Let's love one another. Let's take care of each other. Let's build the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I, I thought about handing out tomatoes this morning because I think I will have done a good thing if I had tomatoes thrown at me from all directions. <laughs> if you had a tomato, somebody might throw it right now. There is no Christian political party. 
I just, I saw a tomato come. There is no Christian political party. The, the original group of Christ followers, the disciples, had one thing in common. They followed Jesus. Beyond that, they seem to have had very little in common. And here's the thing, and I think we've mentioned this before in another context. They did not share political perspective. They included disciples who had profited. The, the big political issue, by the way, in Jesus' day was Roman occupation. Jesus picked 12 guys to be his inner circle. And in that group of 12 guys who Jesus chose to be his inner circle was um, Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, tax collectors had totally bought into the benefit, the personal benefit of Roman occupation. They worked for Rome. They served Rome. They benefited from the presence of Roman occupation. They were politically bought in to Rome. And then Jesus picks this guy named Simon, not Peter. Simon the Zealot. Zealots were, were a group of, of Jewish individuals who were absolutely dedicated to the overthrow of Roman occupation in any means necessary. No limits. Violence was okay. That was on the table. And, and Jesus invites into his inner circle these two guys. And, and then we don't have any idea who was in the middle or what the middle looked like. Or, but what we do know is that from the beginning, the first church ever, the disciples, 12 members, one pastor, the, the first church ever had representatives from radically different political perspectives. And here's the amazing thing. Nowhere in the gospel is there any indication whatsoever that Jesus tried to draw them into the middle. Nowhere in the gospel is there any reference whatsoever that Jesus makes any attempt at all to change their political views or their political affiliation. There have always been differences over politics in the church. There are here this morning. Some of us in the church just are scared to death. Somebody will find out what we really think. <laughs> That's too bad, isn't it? Isn't it? Jesus is tricked into one political debate as far as we know, and his answer was simply, you know, the debate was, who, remember the, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, is, is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar? Remember that? His response to that was simply to hold up a coin and ask them whose picture was on the coin. And, and they said, Caesar's. And, and so Jesus said, well, then give Caesar what's Caesar's. But, of course, that's not all he said. He, he then said, but give God what is God's. And the question that he doesn't ask, but he implies, he asks the question, whose image is stamped on the coin? And the question that that leaves unasked is, whose image is stamped on us? Because he goes on to say, well, then give Caesar what's Caesar's. And give God what's God's. Whose image is stamped on the church? Oh, I 
pray that it's not the image of a political party or a political ideology. I pray that it's the image in which we were created. It's interesting to me that the scribes and the Pharisees take a, a purely political issue, taxes to Caesar, okay? You with me? Purely political issue. And they try to make it theological. They try to make it about where your allegiance lies. Does your allegiance lie with Rome or with the Jewish tradition, with Rome or with God? Uh, there's something unsettling about that. How folks then and even today will take a political issue and, and make a litmus test, make it theological. Hmm. I think I'll just let you work on that yourself. So the disciples are held together by one thing. They're held together by Jesus. And they figured out how to get along in spite of the rest. And Jesus said to them, the world will know that I am who I say I am. And the world will know that you are my disciples. By the way, you 12 guys who don't agree on much of anything, love and care for one another. Whose image is stamped on the church? On our lives. Let me just share a tiny bit about my own personal journey. And um, I am not preaching right now. I am not suggesting, I don't want to suggest, I'm, I hesitate to even talk about this because I am not suggesting in any way that the journey that I have walked should be somebody else's journey. I was not a rebellious teenager. Hard to believe, I know, but I was not. Uh, the, I remember lying to my mother one time. This, this is honestly true. I, now, I have probably forgotten the other times, but I, but I remember lying to my mother one time. I, I, I skipped church on a Sunday night, and I told Mom I, I went to a movie because I was afraid if she found out I went to a Baptist church, I'd be in real trouble. Yes, there was a girl at the Baptist church. <laughs> Nothing ever came of that. I, I was not a rebellious kid. So, so when it came time for me to register to vote, I registered as a member of the other party that mom wasn't a part of. And I did it just to rile mom. And it worked. <laughs> you know, she thought 18 years, or was it 21 back then, years of parenting down the tubes because of what this boy just did. And I stayed there for a long time. And, and, and a, a few years back, a few elections back, I decided that I wasn't at home in either of those groups. And so I changed and I went into that independent thing, which, which doesn't mean much, except that that was my journey. And I'm not suggesting for a second that, that that's a more Christian journey than some other, than some other journey. It, it's, just, it's just the journey that I was on. We need to be very careful to remember whose image is stamped on our lives. And when somebody wants to get to know us, they know us as disciples of Jesus. 
And, and then later on, maybe they'll learn about that other stuff, about how we feel about A, B, C, or D. But first of all, let's be known as disciples of Jesus. Second thing I want to tell you is shorter than the first thing, and there was a great sigh of relief. <laughs> the Christian church is a body, not a block. Uh, Y'all know what a metaphor is. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object which is not literally applicable. Like you, you might say a, a runner is a rocket. Or if you were talking about me, you might say a runner is a snail because I don't run. <laughs> the New Testament is full of metaphors. God is a rock, but God is also a chicken. It's true, it's in there. I didn't make that up. Jesus is a vine. He's also a glass of cold and living water. Disciples are sheep, but they are also branches. The New Testament shows a very significant metaphor for the gathered followers of Jesus, the church. The church is a body, and not just any body. The church is the body of Christ. So much election rhetoric makes me laugh and cry and get really mad and try not to use words that mom would have washed my mouth out with soap for saying. And yes, by the way, mom did wash my mouth out <laughs> with soap a couple times. At the top of the list of phrases, metaphors that frustrate me, is the oft-repeated reference to the church, and particularly the evangelical church, as a block of voters that is or was or should be committed to this or that candidate or cause. And the question that I have is, when did the church of Jesus Christ stop being a body of believers and, and, and become a block of voters? Bodies are diverse, Blocks are not. Bodies move. Blocks sit in one place gathering dust. Bodies grow. Blocks eventually fall apart. Bodies decide where they should be. Blocks just sit wherever they are put. Bodies are dynamic. Where they are today may not be where they will be tomorrow or even where they should be tomorrow. I have a very, very good friend, youth, college, seminary, and on. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ron Benefiel, I, I, I don't know if any of you know Ron or not. Ron was, was a pastor, president of the seminary for a while, now is involved in church relations at Point Loma Nazarene University. Uh, Ron has a, a PhD in sociology. He's one of my smarter friends. I love smarter friends. <laughs> I need some. <laughs> Ron, Ron did his, his, uh, his doctoral dissertation around the political evolution within the Church of the Nazarene, and he discovered some very, very interesting things. In the 1900s, in our earliest days, in the 1900s, Nazarenes were divided almost equally between the prohibition, prohibitionist party was seeking to ban the use of alcohol, and that's not surprising, 
But the Nazarenes were divided about equally between the Prohibitionist Party and the Socialist Workers Party. Yeah, deal with that. <laughs> That's who we was. In the 40s, the membership of the Church of the Nazarene, who, who were mostly part of the blue-collar working poor, were largely New Deal Democrats. Today, most, but certainly not all, Nazarenes would identify with a more politically conservative Republican Party. And I wonder where we'll be in 50 years. My point is not to say that there was a period of time when we got it right at all. Because at every step along the way, we were a body of people seeking to follow the lead of the Spirit, seeking to be Christian. And, and, and over the decades, stuff moves, right? When you're a body, N not when you're a block. We, we just tore down a, a planter in front of our house that was made out of blocks. They got rotten, and they were no good for anybody. And now they're at the dump, mostly. <laughs> Do you get it? I'm not trying to tell you that we were at one point where we should be today. I, I'm not trying to tell you or even guess where we might be as a denomination 50 years from now. What I'm trying to say is, let's remember that we are the body of Christ. And as a body, each of us is a bit different. We bring different gifts. We bring different ideas. We bring different priorities. We bring different ways of working out our faith, and our following of Jesus. And we're really all over the map because we're not a block. <laughs> we're a body. Well, right after this series of questions that the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus about uh, taxes to Caesar, uh, one of the questions is about the legality of divorce. Another question is this really ridiculous question about uh, if, if, a, if, if um, a woman marries seven brothers and then they all die and go to heaven, whose wife will she be in heaven? And uh, uh, let me just say that heaven for that woman would not be to have seven husbands. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Yeah, you said it. Everybody else thought it. <laughs> and this is a dumb question. And Jesus knew it was a dumb question. After Jesus responded to those questions, somebody finally got down to the point. And in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, said this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, at the heart of God's desire for his people is that their lives be God-centered and others-focused. I want you to get those two words. The command to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves calls us to be centered on God 
and focused on others. That's a great way to live. But what in the world does that have to do with how we vote? Well, only in the same way that it has to do with how we do everything. Right? Does that make sense? It, 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 Jesus wasn't thinking about the 2020 election when he said this. Jesus was thinking about the life of the kingdom. And, and Jesus said, this is the way my people live in the kingdom. They are centered on God and focused on their neighbors, on, on their brothers. So, number three. Uh, we, we've already said that there aren't any Christian political parties, and I, I know some of you haven't heard anything I said after I said that, and I'm sorry. Because <laughs> there were one or two good things that you missed between then and now. But the question that we'll end with is, are, are, so are there any, if there, are, if there isn't a Christian party, is there any direction in Scripture at all for how disciples of Jesus should engage with particular Christian issue, with particular issues? Is there a Christian position on issue? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. I want to take one example. It, it, um, it's one of the easier examples. There are many other examples that if we were sitting down over coffee later, we could talk about. So I, I understand that this one is maybe, maybe easier than some would be. But it's also one that has been addressed throughout the Scripture over 3,000 times in the Old and New Testament. In various language, in various phrases, God's Word says to us that people who have stuff are responsible to come to the aid of people who don't have stuff. Right? From beginning to end. Scripture is clear that folks who have stuff, especially a lot of stuff, are called to come to the aid of those who don't have stuff. Caring for the poor is Christian. Leaving the poor to get by on their own is unchristian. 3,000 passages of Old and New Testament Scripture underscore that reality. But, and this may be the most important thing I will say, in this message. Maybe third most important thing. I'll figure it out later. There are lots of valid options politically and economically for ways that a country can address those issues. Some God-fearing, Jesus-following disciples believe that the government should be involved in the process of caring for the poor. Other God-fearing, Jesus-following believers believe that the government should not be involved. You get that? But we are all believers. And we're all seeking to do what Jesus said is the most important thing to do, which is to center our lives in God and focus our lives on others. One of my favorite examples of this is a former associate of mine at the college with whom I could not disagree more completely on political issues. He, 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 is, uh, he is a hardcore libertarian. 
hard, I mean, his, his sincere belief is that, is that the government should have an army, period. End of the story. That everybody else is on their own after that. Except that my dear friend gives generously and compassionately and continually into the lives of those in need. You see? He has this radical political position that says government shouldn't be doing anything for anybody. And I just go, oh man, you're so wrong. No. He, but he has a heart for Jesus. He's centered in God and he's focused on others. And it works out in ways for him politically that just don't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> and I shake my head at him and he shakes his head at me and we embrace and we love each other as brothers in Christ. Do, do you get that? So, over time, I've, I've looked for scriptural guidance for my own political stuff, whatever that is. And, and here's my verse, and it doesn't have to be yours. Goodness, if anybody leaves this attempt at a message saying, well, I guess if I don't believe that, if I, then I must not know. No, that's not, that's not the, that, is, that is the whole not the point. <laughs> Get that? But as I've kind of dug through the word and thought, man, well, I, Gene, what's going to guide you? It, it's, it's been this. It's, it's been Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. We'll talk about that in a second. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and one of mind. And then here it is for me. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's become my guiding light. It's, it's to look at the crazy ballot and all that stuff, the information and all that stuff, and, and, and come at that with this question. What's the best for somebody else? What's the best for the other? Now, Paul doesn't tell us that we shouldn't have any interest at all in our own stuff. He tells us that our own stuff shouldn't be of greater importance than the stuff of other people. And so, here we come to a time of election. Paul says, be of one mind. By the way, being of one mind does not mean being of one opinion. Being of one mind means we are committed to each other within the body of Christ. We are committed to the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. I am committed to you. You are committed to me. We are committed to the crazy people in the pew with us who don't agree with us. And we share that commitment with one another. Even though come the third, we will vote different directions. It doesn't matter. We are of one mind. We care about each other. Don't do anything, Paul says, from purely selfish ambition. Look out for the interest of others. 
and he calls us to have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who, who though he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. And he calls us to walk in the way of a servant. Uh, the thing that gets in the way more than anything else, I think, for all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, I think the thing that gets in the way is, is uh, what I have heard called and read called the myth of scarcity. The myth of scarcity is simply that there's just not enough for everybody, and so if I'm going to have enough for me, it means somebody else is not going to have enough for them. Folks, children of God, scarcity is a myth. Remember the afternoon on the mountainside in Galilee when people were hungry and it was past dinner time and, and uh, Jesus fed 5,000 men and a bunch of women and children? And you know that at every potluck ever, children keep going back for seconds until somebody takes them home. And at the end of the potluck, there was plenty left. We don't live in a world of scarcity. If you don't believe that, by the way, just look at the pile of stuff in the foyer as you walk out of church. <laughs> the things you wonderful folk have brought together for, for those folks over on the coast who've lost everything. A, a focus on the myth of scarcity means that there's not enough to go around, and, and so I'd better watch out for what I've got. It, it generally makes us believe that more is better and enough is not enough and no matter how much I have somebody else has more and I need to get where they are and that breeds fear of the other so as we wrap this up I guess the question is how, how would we vote if we weren't afraid of anything who should a Christian vote for that's the wrong question the, the question is how and why and you know what? If, if we all vote for the, for the right reason, if everybody in this room votes for the right reason, we will absolutely not vote for the same person. Whoa. <laughs> okay, I'll say that again. If we all get this and we all seek the interests of the other, and we all vote for the right reason, we will not all vote for the same person. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Because we have different priorities, different concerns, different beliefs in how to get from where we are to where God would have us to be. And, and, and we're going to vote in that direction. Uh, 246 years and four days ago, do the math, John Wesley said this, 246 years and four days ago, October 6th, whatever year that might have been, I can't do that math. John Wesley said this, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, that was England, 1700s, not everybody had a vote. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, 
to speak no evil of the person they voted against. Oh, America, please hear that. Oh, Facebook, please hear that. <laughs> oh, church, I've given up on America and, and Facebook getting this. But church, speak no evil of the person you vote against. And three, and this is the most important, take care your spirits are not sharpened against those who vote for the other side. Isn't that good? 264 years and four days old, that'll still preach, won't it? So it comes down to this, church. First Naz. Honey, you want to get the car started so we can get out of here real quick? <laughs> it comes down to this. Church, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's show the world that there's a group of folk in First Naz, there's a group of folk in Lewiston who just love each other even if they don't agree with each other. And they're okay with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for either the, the courage or the stupidity to jump into this topic today. Thanks for calling us to be of one mind and not of one opinion. We pray for our nation this morning. We pray for those who lead our nation and those who seek to lead our nation. We pray for your guidance and blessing in their lives. And we pray for wisdom. But mostly, Father, we pray for grace to love each and every one of your children whatever side of this mess they line up on. And we will give you all of the praise as the body of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now go vote. Not now. Wait. But, uh, and we'll see you next week. God bless.